that Judaism really is. In other words, we look outside of ourselves to find the definition of what we know our own religion to be. Whereas we allow everybody else to, uh, we allow everybody else to uh, tell us their own story, as you as as it were, uh, in their own words. Where we ourselves tend to uh, look outside of ourselves to find out what our story is, and let everybody else define the story for us, which is problematic. Okay, that's in that reverse really deals with that at length. Um, in many places in the book, as as, uh, as Rabbi Elias points out in the footnote, we'll see in a moment. So, the second letter, which is the proper approach. So, he, he writes, I am answering your letter at once, dear Benjamin, but do not think that I have not thoroughly reflected on its contents. Meaning, don't think the fact that I've got, been so quick to respond to you means that I took what you said lightly or not seriously and didn't, didn't, didn't consider what you have to say. As you know, the subjects you mentioned have occupied my mind since youth. Here, Rev. Hirsch here uses this as almost an autobiographical statement uh, in which he, which he states that he spent much of his life studying these ideas. You know, too, that I was educated by enlightened, religiously observant parents, that having been inspired by the writings of the Tanakh at an early age, my maturing intellect led me of my own free desire to study the Talmud, the Talmud, the Gemara, and that I did not select the rabbinical vocation because of practical consideration. It wasn't about earning a salary. It wasn't about making money, right? Rather, um, but solely to follow my, my, uh, my inner life plan. It was, it, was a, it was a commitment to the ideas and ideals that Judaism represents, that Torah represents, that's what that was how he got into what he does and how he got into what he believes in. That's that's where Hirsch is coming from. And, and Rabbi Elias points out that this is a this paragraph is an autobiographical statement of Rav Hirsch himself. Again, if you read the biography of Rav Hirsch, you see this is very very strongly in who he is. What I find fascinating, <clears throat> most fascinating in this paragraph, is what he writes, having been inspired by the writings of Tanakh over and over again. We'll see throughout this safer, specifically even in this safer, Rav Hirsch uses the power of the psukim of the language um, to win us over. Not just, you know, see, what he wants us to do is to listen to the to listen to the words and to the cadence of the words and to the way that that, that it's said and the power of, of what it is in order to uh, to um, come to realize the beauty of it. I think. To a certain degree, this is a this is a lost art. This is something that that um, people don't really know how to do um, so much anymore. Um, we 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 uh how, how to put it? I don't know if it's because English is not such a is not such a is, it lacks the kind of power that German does. I don't speak German. The closest I ever came to speaking German was. As a child, I learned Afrikaans, and and that gave me some some sense of it. But it would it seems to me that that German is a is a is has a certain there's a certain I don't know if it's the poetry of it or it's the the power of the words that Hirsch is very sensitive to. And I don't 
I, 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 I rarely do we find that kind of power in the English in the English language. I guess here and there you can find in some Shakespearean soliloquy some some remnant of that type of um, incredible moving type of uh, 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 sense of the power of language. But Rav Hirsch clearly sees it in the in Tanakh, which is that's an amazing thing. That's a, that's an unbelievable thing. I saw recently. I, I heard a share from Rabbi Rabbi David Katz. He is a professor of history and a, a shul rabbi in Baltimore. He teaches in a couple of different schools there. But um, he said that when you look at the uh, historical context of piyutim, piyutim are sort of the extra poetry that's added into the prayers. Um, uh, a good example of it would be if you look in a, if you look in the Machzorim for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, right after the Baruch right after the, the blessing, the beginning of the blessings for the for the Shema, there are there's like three long pages of piyutim of extra paragraphs that are stated over there that people rarely say in, in nowadays. Very few people say them, but um, when people were into uh, poetry and were into Hebrew. This was an important part of of the of the prayer service. And in fact, when the prayer service itself was where people socialized and and they they drew their they, their togetherness from it, that that was a that was that became a sort of a, a a critical part of the of the prayer service. Nowadays, people just want to get in and out of davening as fast as possible, mostly because. Unfortunately, many people don't even understand what they're saying at all, even in, when they say the basics. But certainly, when they when they want to say the full, when they want to give the uh, when you want to go through the poetic elements of the davening, or if you take a look in Slichos, you find this. You find this in the in in some in some of the Zmiros, some of the songs that we sing for Shabbos. Um, there's a lot of poetic license taken in how the language is expressed. And take, for instance. The kinos, the dirges that we say on Tishabov, or leading into Tishabov, or the or the slichos that we say around the Tanes and the fasts. Uh, many of the words that are used there are almost um, uh, they're not they don't fit within the regular standard. They don't fit within regular standard Hebrew. They borrow a tremendous amount from Aramaic. Some of them perhaps borrow a little bit from Ladino as well. And but they're expressive. They're extremely expressive. And Rav Hirsch, it seems, was very sensitive to this element of tefillah and of Tanakh, specifically of the words of the of the Bible, of uh, the biblical studies, the power of the words. Again, I, I wonder, I'm curious as to if that's not um, uh, a Germanic influence, but whatever it is, it's it's a lot. It certainly seems to me that certainly in, in my generation. Um, in our in this general, it seems like it's a lost art, um, unfortunately. But we'll see. Reverse does revert back to it and lean on it to some degree in some of the letters over here over here as well. So he continues. I'm therefore surprised that you suspect me of hypocrisy on account of my official position. That you assume that my defense of Judaism and my understanding of Jewish ideals and ideas is simply based on the uh, necessity for me to maintain my professional, the, the professional calling as a rabbi, as opposed to something that's a deep-seated personal passion. 
Um, were you not my friend and not yours, I would be angry at you. The second paragraph on page 13. But this is, of course, the curse of our time and the obstacle to all our work. Ideals, which should be the heritage of all, have become mere, mere appurtenances of our office. And truths that are meant to rule everyone's life are seen as applying to only one particular group, those for whom religion is a profession. So if you are a rabbi or a chazan, so then you have to be religious. But any everyone else, yeah, it's just a borrowed stuff. It's just to make you look good. It's just a, it's just an outer show. There's no, there's no inner truth to what it is. This is disturbing. Thus, people say he, of course, he has to speak this way. He has to act that way. After all, his position, his livelihood, demand it. What a sorry deterioration of the age when the disavowal of one's innermost convictions for the sake of his livelihood seems perfectly normal. Um, so much so that everyone becomes every everything becomes permissible, providing it yields one's daily bread. Now, if that was true, I think Rav Hirsch is bemoaning the fact that that just to put on a show, just to be a uh, just, just to just to walk the walk, but not really to actually just to, excuse me, just to talk the talk, I should say, but not to actually walk the walk, not to actually believe in what you're doing, to put on a show and wear wear the outer garments of the rabbinate or 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 of somebody who is a who is a person show the show a person to be a person of conviction, and nobody really believes that that's the innermost being of who you really are. That's a sad commentary on life. That is a that is an unfortunate. Uh, an unfortunate uh, uh, progression that people could be so disingenuous that everybody thinks that they see right through them and nobody really means what they're saying. Well, now that our religious ideals and life's truths have been relegated to the circle of the professionals, you and a thousand others with you will perhaps be pleased. After all, now you can hope for, indeed foresee, and the probability that they will soon disappear from there too. Meaning, if it's just a show and it's not important and it doesn't have any real basis and real significance, then how long can it really last? And then, at last, the beginning can finally be made to basing one's life on the principles of happiness and perfection. We point to this out in the first letter that the that the young Benjamin seems to say that the purpose of life is to achieve both happiness and perfection. Those are the criteria by which things should be measured as to whether or not there's success. The purpose he called it. Um, the attainment of happiness and perfection is is man's true purpose in life. So um, uh, those principles hovering between heaven and earth, so self-evident as to require no further support. Here, Gersh has a little bit of a sharp pen, a sharp tongue, you know, the kind of poking a, a little bit of a, of like, why, wh who told you to assume that? Like, who who died and left you in charge. Please forgive my agitation, and I, too, will forget that you spoke in such a way. I shall proceed to answer your letter, and I surely need not reassure you once more that my official station in no way influences my reply. He uses that uh, acerbic edge to, to say that uh, the chutzpah that you have to, to even assume for a moment that I'm not real, that I'm not the, that I'm not the real deal, that I gen don't genuinely believe of these things and that, that to, to state that it's a um that it's just a professional a veneer that is that is uh that is that's that's just beyond the call we can't even begin to have a conversation if that's the way you look at me so let's now look at it with getting beyond that 
that perhaps there is something to this. And let's see if we can analyze it and find a way where a pathway forward that we can both look at, meaning the, both, the, both the skeptic and the person who is, uh, who is deeply involved in it, so that, so that we can actually communicate or set up lines of communication or, or, or establish values that we can both, uh, or, or, or ground rules that we can both buy into. So you want to judge Judaism by whether or not it helps us to attain the purpose of human existence, which, according to your definition, is happiness and perfection. That is, you have arbitrarily defined and decided that the purpose of human, human existence is to achieve happiness and perfection. I might ask, if is it so sure that happiness and perfection are the purpose for which man was created? How do you know? Where, where does that come from? I might ask, what is your basis for this opinion? I might ask, what would you answer the libertine, the criminal to whom intoxication and momentary gratification of the senses outweigh every other happiness, temporal or eternal? So are they are they right? Therefore, they they have a right to do what they do. A person who is a kleptomaniac and he gets joy out of stealing things. A person who is a an adrenaline addict, so he gets joy out of jumping off buildings. So that becomes the purpose of life. Really, is that does that really stand to stand stand? Does that really stand the test? Does that really pass the smell test? Is not every individual entitled to decide his own standard of happiness? So. How do you know what's called happiness? Who tells you who is happy and who's not happy? After all, if happiness has to conform to an to ex externally imposed formula, if you're going to define what brings me happiness and you're going to decide that when I do X, Y, or Z, then I am happy, right? It can no longer be called happiness. <laughs> that's not that's not that's not my happiness. Says it says who? And self-perfection, ascent to the highest intellectual summits. How few ever attain it? If that's the purpose of human existence, where who who are the people who actually ever reach this 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 high point? How few can attain it? Does everybody really have the does everybody really have the tools to be able to do what they're supposed to do? And truth itself, understanding what is truth, it is conceived by a thousand thinkers in a thousand different ways. Moreover, ultimately, the failure to pursue the truth is a sin only against oneself. For which man owes an accounting only to himself? Um, indeed, to whom else could I be accountable if promotion of the happiness and perfection of my fellow beings is demanded of me only as a means of attaining my own happiness and perfection? And I'm prepared to forego, forego these. I might ask finally, what about the many unhappy and imperfect people outside Judaism? If Judaism is the only thing that brings unhappiness, unhappiness perhaps. But what about everybody else? Who's not, not everybody's happy. But, says Reverse, I shall omit all these questions. Put all that aside. Forget, all, forget, all, forget my assault, so to speak, on your definition of the purpose of human beings. Let us put aside the yardstick with which to measure and first obtain an idea of the object that we wish to measure. Um, <clears throat> um, Judaism, as it appears in its history and its teachings, um, so the, uh, before measuring whether or not Judaism is a success or not a success, before deciding if it's accomplished what it's supposed to have accomplished, right? let's first understand what Judaism is. In the process of studying Judaism, perhaps, I'm sorry, Judaism, right, right, right. Um, with which we first have an idea of the, so 
Judaism as it appears in its history and its teachings. Let's first examine what does Judaism tell us about itself? What does it tell us about what it actually is? In the process of studying Judaism, perhaps our thinking about the purpose of man will undergo change, and we may arrive at a different criterion for the existence and the purpose of the nations. Perhaps if we really had a better feeling and a better understanding of what it was all about, uh, then we might have a better yard. But when, then we could come back and decide, based on what Judaism says its purpose is, we can decide whether or not it's successful. But to do that, first, we must acquaint ourselves with Judaism through the source which it itself offers. Judaism tells us where it comes from. We, we know what the source of Judaism, the only documentation and evidence about itself that it has salvaged from the wreck of all its other fortunes is the Torah. The Torah itself tells us what, to, the Torah is the source and the Torah tells us what it's meant to do. And through the Torah, we must attain also an understanding of Yisrael's destiny, of the destiny of the Jewish people themselves. For is not Judaism an historical phenomenon? And is not the Torah the only account of its origin? Uh, it's been around for a lot longer than almost anything else that, we, that we're aware of. Some might say that perhaps Chinese cultures have been here for longer, but I believe um, against, at least against modern Chinese culture based on Confucianism, um, Judaism has been around longer. Um, uh, so for is not Judaism an historical phenomenon, is not the total only account of its, or, or its first appearance on the stage of history and of its existence for a considerable length of time thereafter? And if from the cradle of this nation, in contrast to all others, voices can be heard, voices that disclose the purpose of this people for the sake of which it entered the arena of history and with which the course of its destiny is bound up. Should we not listen to these voices? If we're going to look for a source and we're going to look for a purpose and we're going to look for a, a reason for what, what it is, and there is within the religion itself things that tell us what it was meant to be, do we need to study other uh, texts and, and, and look in the context of other historical records in order to decide and define what Judaism is supposed to be? That would be that would seem almost silly um, to let other people define us when we have our own definition starting from the very root of where we came out, where where we emerged from. Um, As for the teachings of Judaism, the Torah, written and oral, is anyway our sole source. Therefore, to the Torah, therefore, clearly, to define what is the purpose of Judaism, we can't allow some outside philosophical understanding to tell us what the purpose of Judaism is supposed to be, or to define for us what Judaism is trying to teach us. Go to the source and look at what, what does the source material tell you what it is that Judaism really wants. Before we open it, and however, even before we, however, let us consider how to read it as a subject for philological or antiquarian research, as corroboration for anti-diluvian and geological hypotheses, in the expectation of finding revelations of esoteric mysteries. Is that, are those the purposes of Judaism? Certainly not. As Jews, we will read this book as a book tendered to us by God 
in order that we learn from it about ourselves, what we are, what we should be during our earthly existence. We will read it as Torah. Torah, the word Torah means a guide, literally, <clears throat> really, literally instruction. Torah comes and let, and let it instruct you in the, in the future tense in Hebrew. Directing and guiding us within God's world and among humanity, making our inner self come alive. After all, we're attempting to know and understand Judaism. We want to understand and know what it is that connects us. Let us place ourselves within Judaism, not examine it from an, uh, look, trying to look at it from an objective perspective from people from the outside who don't have a context within which to examine something and therefore are going to, are going not, not might make, but will make mistakes in understanding what it is. The best way to study something is from within the context of its own, of its own history and its own philosophy and its own understanding. Not from the outside looking in, not from somebody who is attempting to place upon upon the Jewish uh, the Jewish reality or the Jewish experience some sort of an understanding based on the context in, of the world in which it appears without actually having experienced it without actually having experienced it. It reminds me of if you take a look, Hirsch, Rav Hirsch has in his introduction to the fifth um, volume of the collected writings, Rav Hirsch. Has, was, was a prolific writer in his lifetime. Um, besides for this book, 19 Letters, I mentioned that he also wrote Chorev, which is an expo exposition on all the positive commandments in the Torah. He also wrote, a, uh, he also wrote a, a further exposition, which I don't believe was ever published on the negative commandments. But then he also wrote, he, has, he also had a, news, a weekly newspaper that he wrote all the articles for, and many, many other things. So they have put out nine volumes of collected writings of Rav Shamshim Hirsch. In his Hakdama, in his introduction to the fifth volume, he deals with his erstwhile friend slash student, uh, Getz, um, uh, Gretz, excuse me, Gretz. Gretz wrote an 11-volume uh, um what's considered in the world, outside the Jewish world, considered a magnificent, uh, his, magnificently researched and brilliantly presented history of the Jews. And it's actually called, in the encyclopedia, it's called the history of the Jews. Um, Hirsch has a, uh, a um, what's the right term for it? A, uh, to say the least, his view of Gratz's presentation of Jewish history is dim. He will mention it later on. He, uh, I'll point it out to you. He doesn't mention him by name, but he does mention, he does mention the book. But in his introduction to the book, he, he uses a mushal. He uses a parable to describe where Gratz went completely wrong. And he says that he once had a friend who was blind. But even though he was blind, he was an artist. And as an artist, he, because he was a blind artist and he couldn't see the context of his, of his pictures, so he would draw faces that were very elongated. They were sort of narrow, elongated faces. Um, and that was being was because he was blind, and that's why that's why he drew them that way. Um, but somebody came along and was analyzing these pictures and has a whole big explanation about why the faces in the picture appear narrow because it was a year in which there was a drought and the wine, the grapes produced a very sour tasting 
uh, uh, juice, and therefore the wine itself tasted off, and it made all the people appear the way they appeared. And therefore the painter, the artist, when he paints these faces, paints them completely, in, paints them with these narrow, sour-looking faces. Now, <clears throat> if you didn't know the artist, and you didn't know anything about the artist, then you might assume that the person was actually correct. That yes, that is exactly what he what he did. Um, that's why that was that's a great explanation as to why the faces appear the way they do. The reality has nothing to do with that. The reality is because the artist is is blind and that, and he can't see the shape of the faces that he's painting, and that's why he paints them in that manner. It just happens to be that his hand follows through in that manner, and that that's the way that's the way it is. That is how uh, Hirsch um, characterizes the entirety of Gretz's. Uh, history of the Jews. He says that he has a forced interpretation of people and events in ways that he has no idea what he's talking about. And in fact, in multiple places are contradicted by explicit passages in the Talmud that tell us about the personalities of the individuals in total contrast to what Gretz writes writes about them. This reminds me a little bit of what he's talking about over here. To examine Judaism from the outside and to assume that you know what it is and to and to make inferences and guesses as to how Judaism, it reminds me, there's a, there is a, a popular pop historian, quote unquote, pop historian, um, uh, um, whose name is, uh, I believe it's Thomas Cahill. Uh, he's written a number of Jews, a number of history books, including uh, The Gift of the Irish, The Gift, I think most of his books are called The Gift of, and he, and he, and he so he has a book called The Gift of the Jews. I had the unfortunate, the unfortunate uh, opportunity, unfortunate opportunity to read that book. It's total, total drivel, total nonsense. He gets one aspect of Judaism right, everything else he's completely off base and completely wrong. And it's not his fault. He's not. He he doesn't have the same. And who am I? Like who am I to say that he's completely wrong? Right. I'll just say from, from you know, it's, he interprets things based upon his understanding from a historical perspective. Uh, I'm sure he's utilizing other cultures and other 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 standards to measure by. But this is not it's not it's not who the Jewish people are, and it's not what the Jewish people are about. And and therefore he completely misinterprets motives and mis- misinterprets uh, ideas that, that within Judaism. Um, he assigns assigns idea, uh, um, explanations to them that are that have no that are so far from the, from being accurate. It's just it's shocking. Um, but that's what happens when you try to read or to learn about a culture from from a completely objective perspective. You have to have context. You have to have a, an understanding of who they are and what they are. It may be true that that once you have all of that and then. You can then uh, pull yourself back and look at it objectively. Perhaps you may get a deeper vision of what it is. But without that, so without that internal understanding, without that contextual basis, you are going to be lost. And this, I believe, is what Hirsch is saying over here. As Jews, we will read this book as a tender to us by God in order that we learn from it about ourselves, what we are, what we should be doing our earthly existence. We will read it as Torah, literally, instruction, directing and guiding us within God's world and among humanity, making our inner self come alive. After all, we're attempting to know and understand Judaism, so let us place ourselves within Judaism. Put yourself in the proper context of what it is and ask ourselves, 
What kind of people are they who accept this book as God-given basis, as, as a God-given basis and way of life, as the God-given basis and way of life? As for our understanding of the scope and the content of the mitzvot, how do we understand the commandments? How do we understand the concept that we have a relationship with God through commandments that he gave us? We must approach them in the same spirit as Jews. That is, basing our investigation on the oral and written law. We have to look at our own tradition that describes for us and explains for us what these mitzvot really are at all times. However, we must keep in mind the intent of this entire system. What is the intent? What is the, what, what, what is the overall goal? to provide instruction on living. Torah, it is called Torah. Torah, I will show you the way to live. I will show you what it is that you are are meant to be. Only after you have gained your knowledge about Judaism this way, after you've come to know it as it presents itself, if you should then find it untenable and objectionable, when you look at it from within, not measured against another culture, not measured against the world standards of things, but rather from within itself, as this was, this is the purpose. It's supposed to give you be a guide to life, and supposed to give you a sense of where you're coming from. Only then, if you at that point you still find it objectionable, only then may you, if you wish, cast stones upon it, find ways, ask the questions that you need to ask. But first, learn learn it thoroughly. Furthermore, furthermore, now says Rav Hirsch, and I believe that this is a, this is a fundamental that everybody has to understand in in studying Torah. We must read the Torah in Hebrew. If you want to really get a sense of what Torah is, you must read it in the language in which it's written. You must read it in the context from, from where it comes from because it contains so much more that way. According to the spirit of this language, you have to feel the language itself. Every, oh, there, there is always something lost in translation. Whenever you translate something from one language to another, there's no question that something, some piece of it gets lost. Some aspect of it cannot be given over in the same way with the same power. <clears throat> and specifically, Lashon HaKodesh, specifically Hebrew, where we understand that that is the language of creation. It describes objects sparingly, but the multiplicity of meanings conveyed by its verbal roots is such that it graphically depicts the subject in one word. It clearly, the word defines what it is. This is the reason, this is the same idea that we said that we've mentioned many times. In Hebrew, in Lashon HaKodesh, in the language of the Torah, the word davar, which means a word, and the word davar, which means a thing, is the same word, it's the same concept. The word must describe, must bring out the essence of the thing itself. And if one understands the Jewish language, one understands the source, the roots of the Jewish language, one sees that over and over again throughout the Torah, that the word itself is what the object is. It gives character, it characterizes the object, it describes it in, 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 its, in a much deeper and more essential fashion. Predicate is joined to subject and sentences follow sentence, but the listening soul, somebody who's sensitive to the nuances, is expected to be so watchfully intent that by its own effort, the words themselves will it will supplement what is not spelled out, even what the words don't actually don't necessarily say explicitly, but implicitly that's all there. It is it is, as it were, semi-symbolic writing. The writing of the Torah, the, the symbols depict the actual objects. 
According, accordingly, we must read with an alert eye and ear, with a mind roused to full activity, knowing that the very essence of what it is that we're discussing is being, is being, is being given over to us. Nothing is spun out for us at length so that we could, so to speak, absorb it while daydreaming. There's no, there's no such thing as a clear description of things because the, the words are describing the very essence of what they are. They are hinting at the very, the very core of what, they, what they're supposed to be. We must endeavor to rec- recreate in our mind the speaker's ideas and seek to follow his trend of thought or else the meaning will escape us. There is a deeper meaning. There is a more. There is a. There is a, 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 a. An underlying subliminal message that you have to tap into and you have to pull out. The same applies to our comprehension of the mitzvahs when they assign a purpose to a particular object. The reality is that the mitzvahs themselves, when they when they're connected to specific objects, transform the objects themselves or ordain a symbolic observance. Just as an example, take for example the arba minim. The four, the four species that we take, the Lulav, Esrog, Hadassim, and Arabos, each one of them represents, the, whether it's the spine or the heart or the eyes, represent whether it's the smell that they have, whether it's the taste that comes along with them, represents dimensions that go way beyond what the object itself simply is. The object is meant to bring out a deeper message. In the former case, we have to investigate analytically the connection between the object and its purpose. And in the latter, we have to try to understand the significance of the action considering its intent and context. That's the idea of the, the, the comprehension of the mitzvahs and the objects that are utilized within those mitzvahs. This should give you an approximate idea of the path I have followed. If you do all of this, then you, have an, you, have, you get to an idea of what it is the Hirsch's life teaching is all about. For the time being, I shall communicate to you only the results of my studies, and these for the present in general outline. Later, if you wish, I'll be more explicit and demonstrate my methods of research. I'll show you how we've arrived at the conclusions and the ideas, the expression of which each, what each of the mitzvahs that he's about to discuss actually tell us, or what the events as they play out are actually meant to describe. But now let us read. Forget the frustration that reading these writings caused you in your youth. You can't read it the same way you read it before. Don't read it with a simple, with a simple eye to understanding the surface, uh, the surface interpretation, just simply the translation of the words. It's understanding the power of the ideas that are given over within the words. In a classical example of this would be in the Parsha of, of Parsha Shmini, in the Parsha where it talks about kosher and non-kosher animals. It talks about a an animal which is not pure. It does not say an impure animal, Chazal pointed out. It does not say that the animal isn't in of itself impure. It's simply a, 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 a function of what it does, brings out that element in the world, but it's not what that thing actually is. So forget the prejudices about these writings which you may have absorbed from various sources. Don't think about the way the Bible, essentially I believe he's taking a swipe here at Bible critics, who have attempted to show that have come in with a preconceived notion that the Torah is written by multiple authors and have then have attempted to show how all of that is true. That can't be what you're supposed to be doing. Let us read them as if we had never read them before. This is a difficult task to do, but this is the key. This is the critical element to understanding Torah in its greatest depth, is if a person is able to look at it in a way as something that he's never seen before with brand new, fresh eyes, 
in a way that there is there is a, a great uh, scholar, a 19th century scholar, his name was Yosef Engel. He has a safer called the safer in which he has one very granted, very very complex Talmudic problem that he resolves. He has seven different ways to resolve that 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 problem, and each one of them starts with the exact same question: the power of concentration to be able to do that. To put aside everything else that you thought about before, to, to put aside even a, a a way of seeing things from in which you were able to explain every dimension of what it is, and then you look at it and you say, "Well, there's just this one little thing that I had to squeeze, that I had to tweak, that I had to make it to, in order to do, to, in order to make it right, in order to make something." It takes away from the whole thing. There has, it has to be an, 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 an incredible understanding that everything, everything that we do, everything that we think, actually counts. So let us read them as if we had never read them before. We have to read it with a mature eye. We have to look at the mitzvahs. We have to look at the commandments. We have to look at the way things play out with a very, very mature eye, with the possibility of unseeing beyond what's actually presented on the surface. Let us raise in our soul the basic questions of life. The world around me, what is it to me? The first question is, what is the world? What does the world around me do for me? What does the world around me add to me? How does it make me into a better person? What am I and what should I be in relation to it? Then a person has to take a very critical and honest self-analysis. What am I? What do I deserve to be? What did I, what did I ever do to not, not, not to necessarily merit to be here? <clears throat> so what should I be as a man, as an Israelite? We must read with such a questing spirit. And we shall receive the answer as Jews from the mouth of HaKadosh Baruch from the mouth of Hashem, who alone is able to give it, and he's able to bring that level of, of Kedusha, of, that, of holiness into this. Um, so what should I be as him? What we must read with such a questing spirit, and we shall receive the answer as Jews from the mouth of him, who, who alone is able to give it farewell. This is, this is the opening salvo, if you will, and <clears throat> In Hirsch's response to his non-religious friend, and he, what he's done is he's laid the groundwork to critique not only the idea that the purpose of life is to achieve happiness and fulfillment, because who says that that's really what the purpose of life really is? And secondly, um, to show with, with, from within uh, the context of, of who we are and what we're, what we're, what we're striving to be. Um, it is worthwhile. Um, it is worth uh, worthwhile. Uh, to go through a couple of these footnotes uh, on this particular chapter, I would highly recommend. I don't think we're going to get to it tonight. I would highly recommend footnote number ten, and also um, let's just take a look briefly at footnote number eight. It's on page twenty to place ourselves within Judaism. The author repeatedly comes back to this idea in his writings, and notably in the last letters of the 19 letters, his demand for a self-gefrindus Judaism, which is understood from within itself, um, can be taken in a simpler sense to mean that like any other object of study, Judaism should be understood and evaluated in terms of what it meant it is meant to be, not in terms of what an outside onlooker wants it to be. I want to also say 
Then on top of that, there's another answer to it that it can't be. Um, I think it's Beryl Wine. Rabbi Beryl Wine likes to say, don't judge Judaism by the Jews. Don't judge Judaism by the Jews. Again, Judaism has very, very high ideals, very, very high demands on what it really wants from us. Whether or not we actually represent and, and are able to encapsulate that, that's a whole different question. So you can't judge Judaism by the Jews. Judaism should be understood and evaluated in terms of what it is meant to be, not in terms of what an outside onlooker wants it to be or assumes it to be. We would not judge a fishnet by its ability to hold water, for it was not designed for that purpose. Likewise, Judaism should not be evaluated by whether or not it promotes our standards of happiness and perfection. Those ideas that, that what the goal of a human being is to achieve happiness and perfection, who says? Or by any other criteria foreign to it. It cannot be judged fairly from without. You can't uh, assume what it is that Judaism was trying to teach and assume that you have that you have that you have uh, uh, measured whether or not it succeeded at that until you're actually within Judaism and discover what is it that Judaism is really trying to get across. Um, it cannot be judged fairly from without by the academic scholar applying his own set of premises or by the ordinary person who is a prisoner of his own prejudices, experiences, and time-bound ideas. Judaism is much deeper than all of it. Rather, it is necessary to put oneself foursquare within Judaism to try to think along the lines suggested by it and to seek in this way to come to a meaningful understanding of it. If this rule applies to any human object that is to be studied, it is particularly applicable to Judaism. It does not make sense <clears throat> to measure it by criteria that are foreign to it, because all such criteria would be human. They're all, every other idea that's out there, every other religion is, is decided on by some human being. Whereas the Torah is God's teaching and cannot be measured by man's limited and ever-changing insights, it cannot be uh, calculated based on that. Instead, we have to extract from the Torah itself, what it seeks to teach us. From the mitzvot, we can gain an understanding of the ideas and values inherent in them. And this is a, a strong point of Rav Hirsch, that he says he's very, very big, and we'll see this over and over again throughout the letters. The mitzvot are not simply there so that you can earn, earn scars, so you can earn reward in Olam Haba in the world to come. That the mitzvot have no benefit for any person here in this world. Rav Hirsch is very strongly of opinion that that is not true, that that is not the case. That in actual fact, the only way to understand Judaism is, is, is from within it and from what it builds from, from what it builds a person into. And we cannot impose or superimpose onto Judaism social mores of different times and different eras. It's true as human beings, it's impossible for us to be not to be subject somewhat to the cultures in which we live. The, see, take a look at the way we dress, take a look at the things that we watch, take a look at the things we read or discuss. We are clearly influ influenced and impacted by the world around us. That's for sure. Um, but, but at the end of the day, to understand, truly understand Torah, one has to understand Torah from within because Torah is not like anything else in this world because Torah comes directly from Hashem. Because all such criteria will be human, whereas the Torah is Hashem's teaching and cannot be measured by man's limited and ever-changing insight. We have to extract 
from the Torah itself, what it seeks to teach us, from the mitzvahs, we can gain an understanding of the ideas and values inherent in them, as long as we're careful not to interpret them according to alien, speculative philosophies, but rather follow the guidance of written in the oral law. From the text of the Torah, we can draw deep insight into Hashem's teachings, as long as we try to understand the verses from within, according to the unique spirit of the sacred language, and are guided by the oral Torah, by the dynamic element of Torah, which is that which is given over orally, so that it has the possibility to adapt and to be able to clarify all the different elements within within it. Um, Okay, the conviction that the Torah must be understood out of its out of itself, and that we must put ourselves within it, within it, in order to gr- uh, to grasp it as a fundamental principle. According to Rabbi Hirsch, in the latter parts of the nineteen letters, he criticizes the Rambam for drawing on outside philosophies in interpretation of Judaism. That which the Rambam seems to have borrowed from Aristotelian philosophy and from Aristotelian logic in order to justify what the Torah is, that is, that to the Ramban is anathema. The Ramban is not, the Ramban, Nachmanides is unhappy about that. Um, and he singles out the Ramban and Rehuda Levi for adhering to the principle of spiritual self-sufficiency. Rav Hirsch felt that the concept of contemporary philosophy should often be useful in helping to expound and express the authentic teachings of Torah to a modern audience. And he used to do that, making use of Kantian concepts above all. But the teachings of the Torah must first be developed and comprehended from within. That is the critical element of what it, what it takes to understand a world that goes that's going to go beyond where we are today. But we'll still have to see as we go further in the other letters how these points are brought out. Okay, we'll stop over here. Again, as usual, as I mentioned before, the class will be posted to the podcast, to jewishpodcasts.fm, backslash Rabbi Rafi. Um, you can find the class there, and we can end the last class, and feel free to share any comments. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful evening, everybody.